Welcome to the Triage Method Podcast with me, Gary McGowan, and my co-host, Mr. Patrick Farrell, as always. How are you, Paddy? As per usual, Gary, I am absolutely splendid. Although, you know, they, they change the times, and that always fucks me up, right? You know, they do this daylight savings things, and, you know, it makes sense. It's cool. You know, I understand that otherwise it would be, you know, bright out at like 4 a.m. in the morning. However, it does always mean that it gets really fucking dark when I'm not expecting it. You know, it takes me a good week or two weeks to get back into the rhythm of, uh, you know, the normal day, if you will, circadian rhythms and all that shit. Um, but yeah, other than that, I'm pretty good, Gary. How are you? I'm very good. And I have to say I was quite happy about the uh, extra hour that I got in bed this week because I was due to be driving to Belfast at 4 a.m., and that meant I got an extra hour, which was nice. So that's fair go. enough. But the worst thing about the extra hour is, especially if you forget, is that you forget. You're kind of like you're yep. not prepared for extra sleep, you know? Yeah. Yeah. And I was talking to some doctors in the hospital who were on call overnight, which meant that they had just worked two to three a.m. And then they have to work it again, which is fucking awful. That's just such a horrible kick in the balls when you're in the middle of the night. You're working, you don't want to be there, and suddenly an extra hour of work. So shout out to all the doctors, nurses, pharma people, security, etc., everyone else who works nights who had to do that. Anyway, this week's podcast is going to be about fatigue management, okay? And this is going to lead into a discussion on pain and injury because the principles are, they cross over, and there's different, you know, things to discuss. But as an introduction, we want to talk about some of the basic principles of fatigue management as it relates to training programming. This is obviously something we have touched on in the last couple of weeks. So as we've been talking about the training process, it's basically impossible for us to discuss training frequency and volume and intensity without, you know, paying attention to how much fatigue we're accumulating um, the effects on recovery, the effects on results, uh, that overtraining spectrum, etc. So it goes without saying that you can't just train more and more and more. Okay. There's some point at which you go from contributing to positive adaptations to maladaptation. And that could be injury. It could be just a lack of results. Your performance starts to suffer. Um, you're breaking down more than you're building up, etc. Okay, so there's some point at which that occurs. It's very, very difficult to know where that point is in advance. And this is why we always recommend maintaining, you know, so, some, some presence, some attention, some awareness to how you're actually feeling during a program. Because if someone just designs a program for you or maybe for yourself and you say, okay, I'm going to do this. And in 12 weeks, I'm going to do this. You don't know how you'll feel on week 12. So saying that you're going to do six sets of squats, even though you've been doing five sets of squats for four weeks in a row now, and you're super tired and your knee is sore, sticking to the program in that context doesn't really make sense because you're getting the indicators from your body that something is not going right. You've pushed a little bit too far. So the key point there is that it's not always predictable, but there's some point at which you're going to reach a threshold where no more training is going to be beneficial and it will potentially lead to maladaptation. So the things that might contribute to you reaching that point 
are manifold. So they can, they obviously, we start with the, the basic training stuff. So obviously if you're doing 10 training sessions a week, that might lead to you pushing into that maladaptive um, zone beyond that threshold. But similarly, or on the other side of the spectrum, I guess, you could just be doing your normal five sessions, but now you've got exams going on. You've got a new baby at home. You're not sleeping very well, etc. All of these non-training stressors basically give you less recovery resources. So less resources to be able to handle those stressors that you're applying during the training process. So while you may have previously been able to do five hard sessions per week, doing that now might leave you sorer um, for longer, more fatigued in your daily life in terms of you not feeling very energetic, not feeling enthusiastic about going to the gym, um, wanting to leave the gym early, not wanting to do the next set, etc. So there's two sides of that equation there. It's what are you actually applying to your body in terms of the physical stressors of training? Okay. So, and obviously that what is composed of how many sets, you know, how many reps, what weight are you using? How close is it to failure? How often are you doing that per week, etc. And then on the other side of things is what capacity do you have to handle that? Okay. And that capacity is determined by all of the other stressors in your life, your nutritional status. And another really important thing, which kind of underpins all of this is how well trained you are already. This is a really important thing that people don't often, you know, take into consideration because they look at the programs that are, you know, used by professionals in a given sport and they'll say, okay, I'm going to follow that program. But the reality is that per- that that person has built up over a number of years, even decades, to being able to tolerate six hard sessions a week or 20 sets for their quads within a given session or whatever. And if you just dive in at that, you're just not going to be able to handle that stimulus because that overall stimulus that you're applying is just far beyond your threshold already. So you have to ask yourself, how well-trained are you already? Are you well-trained enough to be able to tolerate the program that you're entering into? Because this is one of the mistakes that people make with the kind of principles of fatigue management is that they'll only focus on what they do after the fact. So for example, they'll apply the mad squat program, let's say 10 sets of 10 on squats to failure. And then they say, okay, I want to improve my recovery and my fatigue management. What can I do to recover from this program? And they'll focus on their nutrition. They'll focus on ice baths and sleeping and meditation, etc. But they're not actually addressing the fact that You can do all of that to the maximum, absolutely optimize it all. But if you're going beyond that training threshold and it's far beyond it as it is, those things are going to do very little to allow you to handle that training. So in summary, for that introductory kind of piece, I guess, training is stressful, of course. There's a certain unit of stress that you're going to be able to handle um, at a given point in time. You're going to be able to handle more stress over time as you adapt to it. You're going to have more of an ability at any given point in time to adapt to stressors or handle stressors. If you have low life stress, if you've got better sleep, if you've got better nutrition um, and so on. And there's a number of different training variables that are going to contribute to that training stress, including volume, intensity, frequency, um, the context, for example, are you injured already? Um, is this a weak muscle group versus a strong muscle group, etc.? 
So that's just an introduction and I'll give you the opportunity to add anything you wish, Patty, and then we can move on. No, that's, that's good. Again, like it, it all comes back to actually looking at what we're trying to achieve with fatigue management, right? Because again, it can be very, very simple to, or very simplistic to look at it and go, oh, I'm going to try and manage my fatigue after being fatigued. You know, you're like, oh, what can I do to recover from this? You know, you do your really exorbitant, extra high volume, extra high intensity, whatever training session. And then you wake up the next morning and you're, you feel like you're fucking paraplegic and you're like, oh, I need to start looking after my, uh, you know, fatigue management here. If I'm going to be able to survive this program. And that's kind of ass backwards. Now for a hundred percent, there's, there's going to be a case to be made that, you know, at certain stages of your training program, your training career, whatever, you're going to have to endure more fatigue, right? And again, especially if you're trying to push the boundaries with your physique development, your strength development, whatever, right? But for the average person, if you are constantly fatigued, you're probably doing too much, right? And we can look at it from the two sides of the equation and go, oh, it's the training stuff that we need to manipulate or it's, oh, it's the recovery, all the other stuff outside of that that we need to manipulate. But the ideal case here should be you manipulate both of them and then you do the minimum effective dose for your training and then you do the maximum effective dose for your recovery because that's probably going to lead to the best results and it's probably going to lead you to having, you know, the best uh, life in general right and of course you know i know whenever you say tell someone to do a minimal effective dose they're like ah like i like to do more and 100 percent, like the two of us of all people are probably doing too much in general so we're not going to hold you back from that but you need to start at the minimum effective dose you need to know what good recovery feels like good fatigue management feels like what it feels like to progress on you know five sets per week like can you actually manipulate your um intensity your overall training stress or the reps you're doing your technique whatever to maximize that five sets because it doesn't automatically get better by just having more sets to do right if anything it gets worse well yeah you're supplying a better training stressor in terms of you know there's more volume of it oftentimes it just becomes junk volume. You know, you're like, oh, well, if 10 sets is good, what about 15 or what about 20? And there's clearly a critical drop-off point where, you know, doing more sets, it's not really getting you more. And all it's doing is accumulating to excess fatigue. So we need to keep that in mind. Like I always think of it when people say like, oh, like Donald Trump got a million dollars from his his dad. I think it was a million, could have been more, I don't know, whatever. Got a million dollars from his dad and he turned it into fucking billion uh, dollars, whatever, right? And people are like, oh, well, if I got a million dollars, I would be able to you know, turn that into a billion. But the actual, the reality of the situation is if most people got a, a million dollars, they would fucking waste it all, right? You know, not to talk about his business practices or fucking whatever, you know, we can, we can spend all day talking about that. But the same principle holds true. Like if you think you could do the same with a million dollars, then why don't you do it with $10? Or why don't you do it with $1,000? Or why don't you do it with like a hundred, whatever number before you get to a million? Like, why does it have to be a million for you to be able to fucking a uh, hundred times this or a thousand times this, you know? If you're able to do this, theoretically, do it with a smaller amount, right? And again, it holds true for the training stuff where it's like, if you think 20 sets is going to be good, well, could you get the same benefit from doing 10 sets? Could you get the same benefit from doing five? Oh, Three sets, too little. You can't get any benefit from that. I'm, not, I'm just picking that number out of my ass here. But you know what I mean? It's like, oh, you actually need a little bit more than that. So you need to find these numbers for yourself. And again, like you can look to the research, you can look to the stuff we've discussed, but generally 
you're going to need to find the point for you where you can manage your fatigue, you can manage your overall training stressor, and then take into account your actual lifestyle, which you know very often just gets ignored. And then we can start going, okay, this is how we're going to design our training program. And these are the fatigue management you know, techniques or whatever that we're going to use, right? Anyway, continue, Gary. Check. So with all of that said, you know, um, let's see how we can actually apply Donald Trump's principles of business to training. So anyway, obviously it, it goes without saying that when we, when we ask ourselves um, how much training should we do, like the minimum effective dose approach or leaning towards that, as Patty said, is going to lead to you kind of having a higher quality of life. You're generally going to be able to you know, feel a bit better every day. You're kind of maximizing a smaller unit of work. Now, if you're a professional, just even from a from a time perspective, like yes. doing two hours in the gym versus doing an hour in the gym, you know, if you're able to get the exact same or relatively the same results from both of those, why would you do two hours? Now, I know obviously people like training and whatever else. Cool, the both of us are in the same camp. But if we're talking about optimizing things, that's where we start. Yeah, and and one of the things to understand here is that if you're a beginner, that minimum effective dose is super low. Okay. So you could do very little um, and get great results. Like, for example, you could do two sets of bench press and get great results. If you did eight sets of bench press, you'd probably get better results. Yeah, you know, but, you know, it's, it's, not, it's not that significant because you're already getting such a benefit already. So there's kind of a, a, a large enough range across which you could get benefit until you get to the point at which, obviously, there's no more to be gained. But when you're advanced, this is and this is something that's really important to understand when you look at a highly trained individuals pushing themselves super hard all the time. The minimum effective dose and the maximum effective dose effectively, they're so close together. So there's just this kind of small range at which someone's going to be able to to get great outcomes. And that means that they have to push very close to the maximum amount that they can handle compared to the beginner. So that's why you might look at an advanced person's program and it looks like they're pushing themselves so hard all the time, you know, um, and that's just because that is required because they've tapped out so much of their benefits from training that they're going to get because they've been adapting to it for 5, 10, 15, 20 years and there's very little else to be gained. So they have to really fine tune everything to find that sweet spot of training that's going to allow them to continue adapting. But earlier on in the process, there's a pretty big range of, you know, training dose a training dose range across which you can get those benefits and very often like it's so much lower than, than you think you might actually require. So if you can benefit other areas of your life and you're in this for the long term and you're not a professional athlete, then leaning towards that kind of lower end of the spectrum, there's no shame in that, you know? Um, so the next question is what are the kind of main contributors, I guess, to fatigue in training? Because like fatigue management is kind of one of those things where it's like a, it's kind of a commonly used phrase, but what do we actually mean? So when we talk about fatigue and we talk about the contributors to that, we can break it down into our basic training principles. So the first thing that we might look at would be the amount of training volume that you're doing. 
Now we can just think of this, let's say if we focus on a single body part and we focus on the number of sets that you're doing for that body part. So for example, let's talk about the pecs or the chest muscles, okay? So this obviously involves joints as well because muscles cross joints. So we're kind of focused on the shoulder and the elbow joint um, as the joints of interest when talking about chest training. So we're kind of focusing on our pushing movements. You got your chest, you got your shoulder joint, and then you've got your elbow joint. You've obviously got triceps, delts, et cetera, as well involved. Now, if we start training and we're doing um, five sets per week and everything's going smoothly and we continue to increase that, there's going to come a point at which maybe your elbow starts to hurt or your shoulder starts to hurt or your chest just isn't recovering anymore. It's constantly tight, really sore for days. And that's that point at which you begin to cross that threshold. So for most people, somewhere between 10 to 20 sets per week per muscle group is going to be a tolerable range. And it's going to be a range that's going to lead to kind of fairly robust outcomes in muscle building. Okay. Now, obviously the less well-trained you are, the lower it's going to be. The, the more well-trained you are, the higher it's going to be. Okay. So volume is something that can be very easily um, well, I wouldn't say easily. I was going to say it's very easily overdone, but I think the reality is that people very often will do 30 sets per week, but they're actually only doing 15 sets of high quality, kind of like you said previously, Patty. And the remainder is kind of junk volume, like they're not really pushing themselves anymore, or maybe they can't push themselves anymore because their shoulder's starting to niggle or something along those lines. But all that extra training is contributing to additional fatigue, even if it's not of high quality to lead to additional adaptations. So you need to find that point yourself at which you feel like you're, you know, you're, you're tired, your muscles have been working, maybe you're sore for a day, two days or so, but you're not sore consistently throughout the week and you're not experiencing significant joint pain. So I would start if I was like, if I had no idea how to set up my program, what I would do is I'd start that around that 10 set um, mark. I'd set out a six week period. And over that six week period or four to eight weeks, let's say, I'd build up to somewhere between 13 to 15 sets for that muscle group of interest. And then I'd see how did I recover at 13 to 15 sets? You know, was I starting to get quite sore? Was I starting to lose quality of the reps? Or, you know, was everything just perfectly fine? And there's a point there as well, where if you're feeling super fresh after those 13 to 15 sets, and you barely feel like you've trained, you barely got a pump, I'd be inclined to continue pushing that volume up. Now, that also assumes that everything else has been done well. So your rep, your rep execution is good. You're choosing appropriate exercises for that muscle. You're pushing close enough to failure, etc. So that's the first thing is volume overall just on that as well we have to take into account that fatigue accumulates right so when you're trying to push up that volume across you know the weeks you know four to eight weeks whatever it is you have to pay attention to not only the workout itself but how you feel going into that workout like you might be like okay i'm going to bump up to 15 sets per week you know i'm, I'm kind of i think i'm ready for it right like you have to pay attention to what did i feel like going into that session what did i feel like going into that week where are my muscles still fatigued from the last training sessions like how like how is the training i've done affecting the training i want to do because all of that helps you you know make better decisions in terms of like oh am i actually recovering because what often happens and this is especially true of the people who you know propagate the idea of increasing sets across a training block you know that's their their, their mode of progression like 
even if you didn't increase the sets, like you still have more fatigue going into week three, week four, week five, week six, week, can't even speak, week six, um, because of the training you've previously done, right? And they always say, you know, fatigue masks fitness. So you're not going to be able to express your best fitness or your best results, if you will, in the gym because you are accumulating more fatigue. And that might be what you want for sure, right? That might be the progression method you're using. However, when we're at this point and we're trying to dial in a specific amount of volume that allows us to manage fatigue, we really have to pay attention to like, how did my last training session affect this current training session that I am doing or want to do? Like, was I going into the session feeling like, you know, oh, like I'm still a bit fatigued from that last session. I still feel a bit sore. I still feel like my shoulder was still a little bit at me. Like that's all information that we can use to better dial in the, you know, actual training, you know, I'll say load and by that I mean intensities and volume, you know? Um, so we have to pay attention to the subjective as well as the objective here. You certainly do. And when you kind of transitioning a little bit, but when we talk about training volume, then, we have to also ask ourselves about not just like the per muscle group volume, but what does the overall training week look like? Because this is something that you'll often see where people will say, right, you said do 10 to 20 sets. So I do 20 sets for every muscle. And then you look at their, their program and they've got like 20 sets for chest. And then the day after they're doing 20 sets for shoulders, like loads of pressing again. And there's huge crossover there in terms of firstly, obviously the joints that are moving and all of the intrinsic muscles at those joints. And even like the anterior delts being worked on chest day and shoulder day. And then you look at their program again, and they've got an arms day where they're doing loads of dips, you know, and they're doing loads of skull crushers. And again, you've got this crossover in the fatigue from each session. Yeah, a classic, classic example of this. And anyone who's really tried to push the envelope with like training volume and training overall will have seen some sort of six-day training program, you know, a legs push-pull split, or I should say push-pull leg split. That's generally the way it's framed because obviously you have to train chest on Monday. So it's, it's push session first. But just think about the crossover fatigue because again, we're, like I said earlier on, we're not just talking about muscles. We're also talking about, you know, joint structures overall. So think about this. If you did a push session on your first day, right? Even if you're looking at you know the the overall training volume in that session you're going okay i'm going to keep this relatively in a good place i'm only going to do you know whatever eight sets for this muscle group you're, you're paying attention to it right and you're like i'm going to repeat this next you know i'm going to do a monday chest and shoulders and tricep session and i'm also going to do something similar on the thursday right so you're like there's two sessions there you could look at that and go oh it's just those two sessions the crossover between those two sessions that i have to be aware of and that's just not the case there's far more crossover because think about this right first of all you know you're using your shoulders when you're doing any chest exercise so there's some crossover there but okay let's say you account for that you're doing maybe less anterior delt work and all your direct delt work is all like you know say middle delt work or rear delt work so you're like okay i'm paying attention to that i'm still managing fatigue but when we go into the next training session which is supposed to be a back training session like we've already taxed the shoulder girdle the day before right so your shoulders the musculature around there the you know tendons ligaments etc have all been used and while yeah you're thinking of it purely in terms of a context of oh i'm just pressing on day one so when i'm pulling on day two 
who cares? But you know, your joint structures, they fucking care because they've already been put into a somewhat fatigued state, right? But okay, maybe you manage that well and you're like, okay, that's grand. You know, I'm going to choose different exercises that target different things. But now you've trained back, right? And then you're supposed to be training legs the next day. And all of a sudden you're like, oh, well, when I was training back, I was doing some like bent over rows um, and, you know, I was fatiguing, you know, my rhomboids, I was fatiguing my spinal erectors, you know, I, I was, you know, training the overall back and now you're going into a leg day and you're trying to do a set of squats which puts a lot of pressure or we'll say you know forces through the shoulders which are always been have been fatigued for the last two days you have to hold the bar there right you're in this externally rotated position with your hands everything but you have to hold the bar there and then also your entire back musculature is fatigued so you know stabilizing the bar is quite tough and then you actually go to do the squat and you're like oh well actually my low back my spinal erectors were challenged the day before as well so we're in a, you know, a terrible recovery position from all of those different muscle groups because of the training sessions you've done previous to that and then you go and go all right you know what thursday we're back again we're into chest shoulders um, you know triceps and it's like okay well when are you actually giving these different joint structures some time to actually recover some time to actually you know effectively manage this fatigue load over the overall week and this is generally why with a lot of my clients i do try to focus on you know the, the minimizing the crossover effect but also having some sort of rest period in the midweek period and not just having like three four five days that run straight into each other because that generally means that you're going to have a lot or a significant amount of crossover in general yeah and and that's huge and especially i think for like the lower back ends up being a limiting factor for many, many lifters, because even if you just look at that, like legs, push, pull setup, what people, what people will often do is they'll have like a deadlift variation and some rows and stuff on their pull day. Then they'll have their squats, etc., on their leg day. And then their push day, it's like, okay, that doesn't seem like it's intense on the back. Right. But on that push day, you know, even little things like arching loads for all your sets of bench press and your overhead presses and everything and then you wake up the next day and it's like oh you know lower back's just a little bit stiff just 10 percent. you know it's not much at all but you then enter that 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 leg session and you're you know going close to failure on your squats and you're doing some um glute ham or rdl or something along those lines and again the back is like maybe it's like 30 percent fatigued now you know it's not too sore but yeah you're starting to feel it a little bit and then you go into your pull day and you've got your deadlifts, you've got your bent over rows. And what you find is the deadlifts went fine, you know, back became a bit of a limiting factor towards the end. But when it came to the bent over rows, like your lower back was now the limiting factor and you weren't actually able to train your lats or your upper back muscles well. And that's the kind of classic example. You know, I always, I always have that report um, from people who, especially who run those kind of six day programs where they're just not able to do uh, certain exercises for their back because their lower back ends up being the limiting factor. So you have to consider the overall training week. And that's obviously really important as well for people who are doing some form of concurrent training. Uh, the classic example is a field sports athlete, you know, GA athletes, they train Tuesday, Thursday, and then game on Saturday or Sunday, let's say something along those lines. And they want to train their legs twice per week as well. And if you're, you know, setting up that training week, you have to ask yourself, okay, when do I want my legs to be freshest? Okay. Is GA my priority? Yes, it is. I want to be able to perform well. Then you don't want your hardest leg day to be on Friday before the game on Saturday. Clearly that's silly. Okay. So what you might do is have a hard leg day on Monday, 
you know, you might go into Tuesday's training session feeling, you know, a bit sore in the legs, but generally Tuesday might be the easier training session of uh, the week before the game, let's say something along those lines, um, or you don't push yourself as hard. And then you maybe you do your lighter leg day on either the Wednesday or the Sunday after the game or whatever way you end up setting it up. The general point being, or the general gist being that you need to ask yourself, how's the fatigue from this training session going to affect performance at the time that I want to be able to perform my best. So that might actually change for you. If you have a game that week or you don't have a game that week, if you're just training, you might be able to push the envelope a bit more. And then when you have that train that, that game week, you might actually pull back a couple of sets, particularly for those muscle groups that you feel might be a bit restrictive for performance. So one of the things that I would do fairly frequently would be if I have a person who's, um, training their legs hard they want to get stronger legs bigger legs but they also want to be able to perform on the pitch then what i might do is on those weeks where they have a match at the weekend is i might pull out a set from each of their hamstring exercises and tell them to leave an extra rep in the tank it's a fairly subtle change but it means that they're probably going to go into the game then you know feeling like the hamstrings are actually fresh and that they're not already fatigued because especially you know it goes it's it's a sport by sport basis but you want to ask yourself what muscles are actually at risk of injury here as well. So not just performance, but also risk of injury. For example, hamstring strains, super um, frequent or super common in field sports. So I don't want that risk to be elevated because of training that we're doing on the side, because we want our training that we're doing on the side to be serving the purpose of injury risk reduction. So we could go over countless examples there, but the overall point is that you need to look at the overall training week first and foremost, and then you need to look at the different activities that you're doing within that week and what your priority actually is. And this all goes back to the start of the training series where you need to do a needs analysis. You need to know exactly what you're aiming at. Is leg day your priority or is hurling training your priority or soccer training or rugby training? You need to figure that out for yourself. Okay. Now, the other subdomains of the training principles that might be important here would be things like intensity. So for example, firstly, intensity in the way i guess that people kind of use it every day how how close are you pushing yourself to failure how hard are you training okay you can do a lot more sets five reps from failure than you can if you're taking every set to failure so that's pretty simple pretty self-explanatory if you're going closer to failure you're not going to be able to handle as much overall volume so you, those two training principles interact all the time the other component of that and um, that's maybe a little bit more complicated is absolute intensity. So the percentage of your one rep max or how much overall weight you're lifting and most importantly, what that is relative to your max, okay? So if you're going in lifting 90 to 95% of your one rep max and you're doing that every day, you know, that's gonna be tough work. Even if you're only doing a couple of sets or one set, that's gonna be tough work because the overall stress on the body is very, very high as you get closer to a one rep max. And obviously, if you're also pushing that really close to failure, that's going to be even more challenging again. So that that's something that's really important because sometimes people will transition into a strength training phase, let's say. They normally do eight to 12 reps, and now they're going to do loads of singles or loads of triples or loads of sets of five. And they might you know, do a similar structure to what a powerlifter might do, but they haven't actually got the same capacity for handling that level of volume in that intensity range. So there's some specificity there as well, where like saying that you're going to do five sets of squats when you previously did five sets of 
10 to 12, and now you're going to do five sets of three, they're totally different stimuli. And the, you, may, you may find that that's actually far more fatiguing for you. Whereas the power lifter, if they were to do five sets of 12, any power lifter will tell you that that would be hell for them. Okay. And really, really difficult. And that kind of goes back to, you know, what are your own strengths and weaknesses? What are you used to? Obviously there's individual factors like muscle fiber type and all that sort of thing. But the, the most important thing, I think really, if you've been training for a while is how different is what you're about to do from what you normally do. And if you were going to do, you know, sets of 20 on squats and you've only ever done sets of three, like that's just going to leave you so fatigued and so sore. And the other thing there as well is that there's, there's somewhat qualitative differences in the type of fatigue that you're going to get from those different activities as well. So if you do, you know, sets of 20, you're going to be super sore from a muscular perspective within and after the session. Whereas if you do sets of like one to three, you don't get that same level of muscle soreness, but you get this feeling of just like dread and overall systemic fatigue. Okay. So you're going to feel really zapped. You're going to feel like, you know, that that was like that gave you the same amount of fatigue that you would from three normal sets and your head's kind of hurting because you push fully to failure and anyone who pushed themselves to a true run one rep max will know exactly what i'm talking about there and there's also the additional thing there where when you work with heavier weights closer to your one rep max any deviation from your normal technique um, is going to have a potentially bigger impact so for example if you're at 100% of your one rep max and you shift your hips slightly to the left and now you're mainly on your left leg, you were already at 100%. So you don't actually have much more to give from that left leg. So there's a higher risk of potential catastrophic injury. Now, it's not very common at all, but if you were to do 100% of your one rep max every single session, then those um, small risks would certainly add up over time. So that's another thing that has to be um, considered in the, the discussion of fatigue. Do you have anything to add there? We'll continue. Well, basically, you just need to manage your training, training load, intensity, and volume. Like there, we've talked about these principles before. And if you've understood the rest of the training series, you know, the programming series, if you will, like you start thinking about these things and then you start layering on the fatigue management stuff and you go, okay, this is, this makes a lot of fucking sense. This is probably why all these different programs that you see, you know, propagated online or whatever, this is why these ones are more successful than these ones. Oh, this is why these certain populations struggle with these things. And then it starts all to kind of click a little bit more. Yeah. And, and the other thing that, that probably doesn't warrant as much discussion, because if you get the first two points related to volume and intensity, this is fairly clear, but that's training frequency. And when we talk about training frequency, it should be obvious to the regular listener, to someone who's paid attention to the volume discussion, that we have to consider volume when talking about frequency. So saying I train my legs three times per week, that doesn't really mean anything unless you tell me how many sets you're doing, what weights you're using, how close you're going to failure, etc. Because if you're doing 15 sets once per week, and then you change to doing 15 sets three times per week, okay, that's ridiculous. Okay, that's clearly a massive increase in loading. And that's going to be really poor from a fatigue management and an injury risk perspective. But if you're doing 15 sets, and now you do five sets three times per week, you know, I can get on board with that. Because what you're doing is you're spreading the overall training dose across the week, there's going to be less fatigue per session but there might be a little bit of residual fatigue from from one session into the next but because the overall unit of fatigue is lower it's not going to have a massive impact 
So that's smart training. On that as well, one of one of the things as well that you might notice is that you actually get better results from that because all of those you know five sets, if we're talking about this, are now at a slightly better. Uh, I was going to say intensity. That's not really the right word, but they're at a better, you know, crisper technique. You know, you're actually able to push to a more effective dose with them rather than going into you know you do your first exercise and you do five sets of that then your next exercise of five by the time you're on the kind of third set of that second exercise you're kind of you're kind of starting to drag a little bit you get through to five sets and then that last let's say it's you know a classic example like you got some sort of squat you've got a leg press and then you've got some sort of leg extension the squats you're fatigued after them but you hop on the leg press it takes the loading off the low back you're like all right my legs still have some juice left to give you start pressing away again you to the third set of that leg press and you're kind of like oh i really want to do a next another set and um, but you grind through you get the five sets done then you get to that leg extension and this is where you know we talk about junk volume most people just kind of go through the motions on that they're nowhere near you know effective um reps with this like obviously they are close to it but it's basically just kind of crap volume that you're just kind of going through the motion there's no real control they're not really pushing themselves and that's because you're doing 15 sets in one session whereas again if you were to even just keep the exact same exercises and now spread it over three sessions all of a sudden every one of those sessions you have a higher quality of work because you do your five sets on the first day and you're like cool my squats went really fucking great they always do i feel in a great position then the next day you're like okay i'm actually going to push these leg presses that i've never actually you know prioritized before i've always prioritized squats before them and i'm going to really push them to you know a higher intensity and then all of a sudden you're on your 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 friday session or whatever it is your third session you're like i only have to do leg extensions on this and then you get higher quality work from that now the thing about that is you might look at that intuitively and go right that's actually going to be less fatiguing than doing 15 sets in one session but also it can especially initially be a little bit more fatiguing because now you're actually doing higher quality work because before yeah you were doing 15 sets on paper but in reality you were doing eight good sets and then the other sets were kind of junk and that's kind of what we were talking about earlier on yes sir and i think that you know as you say higher frequencies can be used really well to enhance the training process. But I mean, you have to be careful with this too, because like you, like you can take this to the extreme where you're trying to train every muscle group four times a week or something like that. And you run into the same problems that we ran into previously, where you've got a crossover between the fatigue from your deadlifts to your squats, to your rolls, et cetera. Um, so, you know, just, just be reasonable with it. If you're used to training at a frequency of once per week, maybe go to twice per week and reduce the volume, you know, just split it between the two sessions, see how it feels and adjust from there. Okay. So frequency. I think for most people, two times per week is probably going to be the sweet spot. You know, no, that's fine. I was going to, I was going to agree, you know, twice per week. What I'll do for some people is we might do like twice per week as our average week average frequency and then for a muscle group of priority we might add a bit of extra volume at the end of one of the sessions so for example someone might be doing um uh, full body full body upper body lower body um type of program so they're training four times per week and let's say we want to focus on um i don't know shoulders 
So they've got, you know, shoulders in their full body A, they've got shoulders in their full body B, and then they've got shoulders in their upper body as well. Um, but maybe in full body A and B, one of them is generally more chest focused, one of them is more back focused. So it's not like we're training every upper body muscle three times per week, but we might focus on getting those shoulders done three times per week. So there's a million different ways you can set up your program. It's yeah. not really the purpose of, of this podcast, but just note the role that that plays within the fatigue management equation. Now, I guess the final thing that I kind of want to touch on for um, this episode of the podcast, at least, is the role then that I guess the specifics of the exercise play there. And this is something before we, we actually go on to that, we should actually just cover one thing about intensity. And this is arousal. Right? Yes. Because that obviously plays a role and that kind of does go into the other stuff, especially like the managing life stress stuff as well. Yeah. Because and if you have an ere- if you have an erection and you're doing like chest supported role, like it's going to be, a, is that what you mean? Is it? hundred uh, percent. That's what I meant. You know, you don't yeah, get the right blood flow and you're not getting any recovery, the nutrients, you know, they're not going where they want to be. No, obviously with arousal, I mean, is like how hyped up are you getting for your actual training sessions? Like you see these people going into the gym and they're, they're cracked out on like, you know, a gram and a half of caffeine and whatever other stuff is in their pre-workout. And then they're also like, you know, listening to death metal and they're also, you know, watching, you know, training montages before they get into the training session. And they're overall, they're just hyped up. That's obviously more fatiguing than the person that just goes in and does a, you know, good, effective session. That's a little bit more, we'll call it casual in their ability to get hyped up, right? So this is something that we obviously have to manage. And it does tie in nicely with the overall discussion of managing your stressors in general, because, you know, they also contribute to your fatigue so if you are again like that redlining you know you're basically snorting cocaine and caffeine to get through the day like that's obviously different and you're going to be far more fatigued than the person that is you know calm relaxed and taking it easy right and again you've definitely noticed this in your life you know you've done training sessions where you know you've been more hyped up because you want to get a pr or something and you're way more fatigued from that. But even just think about like, you know, daily life as well, where, you know, you've had to give a presentation in school or in work or whatever, and you're a little bit more like, you know, anxious about it, a little bit more wound up about it and everything. After that, you're like, you're fucking wrecked. You know, you've literally just, you know, you fucking dumped all of that excitatory, like stimulation, stimulation. And you're just kind of like, right, I'm, I'm ready for bed. And it's like, you know, 12 in the middle of the day, you know? So like, arousal is definitely something that we have to factor into this and it does kind of go in with that intensity discussion because like if you're doing like a you know five reps from failure set like you're very unlikely to be like right let's get the fucking death metal on let's get fucking you know as many fucking pre-workouts going you know you're not going to get as hyped up for that versus someone that's going in and they're trying to hit a new three rep max and it's on like a bench press and there's no one else in the gym to spot them in case they die you know so like there's different levels of arousal going into this. And that is something that obviously has to be factored in. A hundred percent. And I mean, like this actually is something that I talk about with clients a lot because it goes beyond the session itself. Like it's not just how hyped are you within the session, but the classic example is like uh, uh, sporting events and presentations illustrate this well. But even if you just focus on a, a the training program itself, what you'll often hear from bodybuilders is, when they have a really tough leg day coming up, they're thinking about it for the whole day. They're anxious going into the session. You're driving to the gym. You're feeling anxious about it. You know, the hour or two before you're anxious about it. You have to watch the hype videos, as Patty said, like all of that is contributing to the fatigue that you're experiencing. It's also contributing to like anxiety beyond the session. And if you're doing that twice per week, that all starts to add up. 
So if you've got a training program, like this is one of the things that I'll, it's not a, a direct fatigue management principle, but I'll give people exercises that they enjoy and they look forward to doing because it means that the session is no longer as daunting because they're looking forward to doing something within the session. So all of these psychological factors are really, really important to consider um, considering the overall fatigue experience. So moving on then just to the, the exercise selection, as I said, as I said, just there, you know, obviously if you're doing exercises that you enjoy all the time, rather than those that you hate, that has the potential to be less fatiguing, or it has the potential to be more fatiguing if you push yourself to failure all the time, whereas you might put in any effort to exercises that you don't enjoy. So, you know, take that for what you will. Uh, that depends on the person, depends on the program, etc. Now, the important detail here is that different exercises contribute different levels of fatigue. And fatigue is a vague term. And deliberately so in a way and that's kind of why I like using it because when we talk about fatigue like all I care about like it, it's like we don't care about like the specific uh you know um millimole of muscle glycogen or whatever within the cell like that's not what matters what matters to us is how do you feel after the session how do you feel going into the next session are you progressing and are you getting injured they're the things that really matter Okay, so that's what we're, we're that's what we're focused on, and that's why a vague term actually works well here. And when we focus on, let's say, a deadlift, for example, and we try to quantify the fatigue, you know, we could say that, okay, well, you get one unit of fatigue on your glutes and hamstrings, and you get one on the lower back, but you know, you kind of get half a unit of fatigue on the quads and half a unit of fatigue in your forearms, etc. But what really matters is asking yourself, how does this fit into your overall program? And what we know is that when you're using more overall musculature. Um, like in a deadlift, that that's going to be having greater overall impact on your fatigue. Okay, so even looking at that and calling it one unit, one unit of hamstring fatigue, and comparing that to like a lying leg curl, it's just not a fair comparison because very clearly there's a difference there in terms of the overall amount of muscle that you're using, um, and that's fairly intuitive if you've ever trained, you know, if you've been to a gym. So deadlifts, squats, overhead presses more complex exercises like clean and press, et cetera. Basically any movement, particularly those where your whole body is under load. Some people call it axial loading um, and you're using lots and lots of muscles together. That's generally going to be a lot more fatiguing than an isolation type exercise. And in particular, the fatigue there is going to be greater systemically. Okay. So the overall fatigue, fatigue um, on the, the system, on your physiology. However, if you focus on something like, a, uh, let's say, a seated leg curl, if you're doing a seated leg curl, you mightn't feel that fatigued after it in terms of systemic fatigue, but you might actually have a lot more muscle soreness after the seated leg curls in your hamstrings than you would um, if it was a, a deadlift. And this is kind of the difference between local and systemic fatigue. And this is, you know, it's, it's, it's enough of a spec. It's, it, it is important to specify at least that far. Okay. You have to ask yourself, what's the systemic fatigue and what's the local fatigue in that case, there's actually another level of analysis that sometimes becomes important, more important for some muscles than others. And that is what range of motion or rather what muscle length is this exercise training that muscle at? The seated leg curl is a good example because the seated leg curl and the lying leg curl train the hamstrings at opposite ends of that muscle length spectrum. When you do a lying leg curl, your hamstring is really short at that end position. When you're at the 
so-called stretch position, your hamstring still has plenty of length left to go. When you're in the seated leg curl, you're going to be accentuating the stretch or maximizing the stretch or load on that stretch rather than that shortened position. So the difference there is that when a muscle is trained in its lengthened range, that generally leads to more soreness and or muscle damage in the days to follow. And as a result, that's going to carry a, I guess, a a higher unit of fatigue in some sense than the lying leg curl. Okay. So they're both applying a stimulus to the hamstrings. They both carry a certain amount of fatigue, but the soreness that's going to accumulate is going to be greater for that seated leg curl. That's one of the really important principles to get here when it comes to exercise selection, because there's actually inherent limitations in getting some muscles into their length and range. The classic one is shoulders. Some people feel like they can do as much shoulder volume as they want without any um, excessive muscle soreness. And that's because it's quite difficult to get um, the deltoids into their lengthened range. And in particular, it's very difficult to get the lateral fibers or the outer fibers or middle fibers um, into their lengthened range. Because what happens with those is that as you begin to stretch them, well, you kind of run into the side of your body. So you can't really do much about that. So they can get into a longer position when your arms in front or your arms behind, but in general, they're not getting stretched very much. So you can do tons and tons of lateral raises without that much muscle soreness. Whereas if you were to do the same volume of RDLs and seated leg curls, your hamstrings would be in bits. Okay. There's other more, you know, there's other minutiae there in terms of the average um, length of specific muscles, like where they're strongest, different muscles vary in terms of um, what sarcomere length they're going to produce the most force, most force at, etc. But that stuff is is not particularly relevant for this conversation. The main thing is, you know, are there exercises like in terms of the practical application of this? Are there exercises that leave you feeling way sore than others? And if so, be more tentative when adding in extra sets of those. So I would generally be a lot more conservative when adding in sets of RDLs and seated leg curls than I would be giving someone sets of lateral raises. Like I'll, if someone wants to do more shoulder work, I'll say, yeah, go on, add in four sets of lateral raises, do them to failure. It's no problem. Okay. It's not going to be a big deal, but the same thing could not be said for hamstrings. You do four sets of seated leg curls to failure, focusing on that length and range and your hamstring is going to be sore for days, especially if you're not used to it. So kind of the the final there's there's definitely loads more we could discuss but i think that's that's the final basic point Um, yeah i'm just moving on to to kind of wrap this up there are obviously look we look at the training session how we organize the training and that's obviously where this fits into the overall training series discussion that we've been having however as we've been touching on you do have to look beyond that and there are a few things that we can look beyond that too obviously managing stress in your daily life as we discussed it's not just the training stress that we have to look at it's lifestyle stress so again that's beyond the scope of this podcast but it is something that we need to look into sleep obviously plays a role in this again it plays a role in that recovery that recharging etc as does eating enough you know it's going to fuel the training session itself but also it's going to fuel the recovery from the training session right And we touched on it in the previous podcast, but periodizing your training, that's why it is important to do, right? It is important to periodize your training so that we can actually manage fatigue across the months, across the years, right? So again, go back, listen to that episode. It puts a lot of the stuff, well, once you've listened to this episode, that episode becomes even more clear again, right? Obviously, again, on top of that, and we talked about it in previous episodes, 
auto-regulating your training, like actually listening to the subjective and you know somewhat objective feedback of your body and going, okay, how do I feel? Oh, I'm actually feeling beat up the fuck. So I was supposed to do, you know, uh, three sets here and they're supposed to be, you know, close to failure. I don't think I'm ready for that. So I'm actually going to just auto-regulate my training. I'm either going to reduce the load or maybe I'm going to go a few reps from failure. Like that is something that, especially as you get more advanced, it becomes easier to do itself because you're actually not just ego driven anymore, but also you understand when to put the foot down and when to pull back. And that is something that obviously you need to develop over time. So all of those things, they play a role in, you know, this overall fatigue management. And I'm sure you have some things to say, but what I want you to really touch on and finish up on is like, where do different tools like, you know, ice baths, uh, foam rollers, theragons, different things like that, that are often marketed in terms of helping manage fatigue, like where do they fit into the equation? Yeah, the, the, the big area that this fits in um, quite well for me is when you're doing a period of training or a period of competing in which your participation in that level of training is basically unavoidable or that level of exposure is basically unavoidable. So an example of this would be, let's say you're you know playing sport and it's a very intense period of the season. And you just got to keep showing up the training and keep performing because this is really important. Anything you can do to get back on your feet and train again sooner and feel better sooner is fine by me. Okay. So if you, if you feel better after a massage or foam rolling or ice bath or whatever that lets you get back in your feet, by all means, go ahead. Now, the important thing is that there's a difference between recovery and an adaptation. So these things can get you back on your feet but it doesn't necessarily mean that it's leading to greater adaptations. Okay. And that's a really important point because this is something you see with, I think ice bats, but cryotherapy, more advanced cryotherapy in particular, you can get enhancements in, in recovery and the blunting of certain, you know, inflammatory markers. But one of the trade-offs then might be that you get poor adaptations to your training because while you can get back on your feet, and get rid of some muscle soreness, you're not necessarily enhancing adaptations. You're actually compromising it because you're blunting some of the signals that would lead to adaptation. So there has to be some degree of degradation um, or disruption to the system where you feel a bit crap for a while for you to be able to adapt um, and and get stronger. Now, the, the key thing is that when you're within a competitive uh, phase or let's say a multi-day competition in martial arts or the olympics or whatever you actually are not trying to get better like you've done that you've done all your building you've done all your investment into your fitness and now it's about expression so anything you can do to get you back in your feet to express your fitness better that's absolutely you know going to be great now there are plenty of people who use things like um, foam rolling or stretching or a Theragun after workouts to make themselves, you know, feel better as part of a recovery routine. But there's nothing inherently wrong with that. You know, if it makes you feel better, um, that's perfectly fine. It's certainly not a necessity. And the only time I would have an issue with, you know, someone using these things for recovery or, or suggesting them for recovery would be when they're, you know, making them out to be necessary or that they're going to massively enhance adaptations because 
The reality is they're not really, okay? Foam rolling, for example, you might do it and get a very short-term increase in range of motion, um, or you might feel like you have a little bit less muscle soreness coming off it, but it's not really going to enhance your training adaptations um, by any stretch of the imagination. So in terms of managing overall fatigue, very minor effects, um, useful within competitive periods or periods where expression of fitness is a priority, probably less useful when you're just trying to build, but, you know, personal preference as well. If it's part of your recovery routine, makes you feel good and you're not taking time away from training, by all means, go ahead. The issue is when people start to use these things as part of their limited training time. So if you're a regular person working during the day, coming home to your family at night and cooking dinner, etc., and you've got an hour that you can train per day, taking 20 minutes to foam roll out of that hour is probably a poor use of your time when in fact you could be training more and fatigue management probably isn't even that important, that important because you've just got an hour to train. You need to get after it. So yeah, look, we could do a whole podcast. The only other tip to them as well, I suppose, is also the fact that people do them or use these tools instead of doing all the stuff that we just talked about in this episode Yes, and actually managing their training or looking at their stress, looking at their lifestyle, et cetera, et cetera. So that can also be a negative where people basically use use them as a band-aid because they do provide some, you know, benefit, even if it's transit, Mm -hmm. transient, I should say, like you'd be like, Oh, actually I feel more recovered. And you know, that's fantastic. If it, like you said, you're trying to compete and you're like, I have a train, I have a, a competition in an hour two hours, three hours. And I, just came off you know another competition um, or another event or whatever so they can be definitely useful in that respect but if you're just using them every single day and you're like i need this tool to be able to perform the next day and you're just a general trainee there's probably something going on there that we need to uh, dig a little bit deeper with because why are you feeling so fatigued why are you so beat up from your training sessions from your three to four training sessions per week that you need these different tools to be able to train you know yeah absolutely like you see that at, at um jiu-jitsu all the time where guys will go in you know to every training session they're sparring 100 percent every single round and you know they're getting tapped and etc and then they're like oh you know what my shoulder's at me you know what what could I add in to, to fix that? You know, is there an exercise I could do? Is there like a massage? Is there, is there something I can fix it? And the reality is that it's addition through subtract through subtraction in that case. So it's actually about, you know, pulling back from some of those sessions, you know, doing a little bit less hard sparring, maybe taking one day where you just do drilling, etc. cetera, um, applies to every sport. So before you consider what you can add, ask yourself, is there something that actually needs to be taken away? Like, are you doing something that's unnecessary for your athletic development? That's actually just adding fatigue because if so, it's doing nothing for you. Okay. It's just compromising your adaptation. So don't let that happen. Anyway, Gary, wrap this up. Where can people find us, etc.? Yep. So if you're interested in coaching with us, you can get in touch with us. You'll find information in the description box below. We do have coaching spaces available. I believe all our coaches have spaces at the moment. Um, It's coming up to Christmas. Okay. It's generally not the period of time that a lot of people are interested in getting involved in coaching because they're thinking, ah, you know, Christmas is coming, blah, 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 maybe in the new year, but there's no harm getting started now. Okay. Generally what we find. Even if look, even if people don't want to get started now, 
find out the process because what yep. always happens every single year people go in and go it's the first week or the second week or the third week of january <clears throat> and then they're like oh i'm just going to reach out to this coach and i'm like i do calls i talk to these people all the time like you might not get a call booked in for another three four or five weeks after that initial you know in- inquiry especially in january you know so factor that into your overall thought process that you know if you think you're going to want to start in january like you don't have to start now with us you can have a discussion you can see what our prices are like you can see what our availability is like what we think if we're actually even able to help you because like we don't work with everyone and then if that's you know you think it's ready to go and you're like can i start in january like as long as i know that cool we can get you going but if you're going to go oh i'm going to inquire in january like you could be waiting till february to even get on a call yeah Absolutely. So if you are interested, get stuck in. One thing I was going to say is that generally what we notice is that people do a lot better going into the new year if they've got some momentum going already. So Christmas can be a bit of a break and it always is for most of our clients, to be fair. Um, And that doesn't tend to be too obstructive to the coaching process. All it means is that up to around the 20th or 21st of December, you know, people are going strong. And then, you know, they, you know, have a bit of a blip for a week or a week and a half or whatever. And then they're kind of motivated going into the new year because they're saying to themselves, oh God, I can't wait to get back into my routine. I can't wait to get back to how I was feeling. I can't wait to get back to the gym. And that back to is a lot easier than just starting. Okay. So um, if you start now, I guarantee you the new year will be a lot easier for you. So let's make 2022 strong. Otherwise you can follow along with our free content, which you can get plenty of on our socials, Instagram in particular, we have a lot of free content going out, tons and tons of stuff that you could be learning. If you just follow our page and you read our each post that we put out each day, you will learn so much about training, about um, how we coach our clients, about nutrition, um, some psychology stuff, etc. It really will help you to try to you know improve your own results and even design your own program design your nutrition, et cetera. So you don't have to get coaching. You can use our free info and still make great progress. Um, if you're a coach, we do have a member site for you as well. So if you're interested in enhancing your own education, you can sign up to the coach's corner for a new low price of 15 euros per month. Okay. So pretty cheap. It was previously a lot more expensive and we brought it way down. Um, and we just want to get plenty of people in there. You know, it's not it's not our main money maker at the moment, so to speak. It's just, you know, ticking away in the background. We're putting out lots of content there. There's so much content in there already. So much that you could be learning in terms of training, anatomy, physiology, nutrition, coaching principles, etc. And we want to be able to support any coaches that want to enhance their education. So check that out if you want. You can sign up for a month and unsubscribe if you want. Um, but generally, people stay for a number of months. So, um, yeah. That's that's us. I have nothing else to add. So yeah. Fantastic. I forgot that I had the record button and I had to click stop. So <laughs> I am the captain now. <laughs> Goodbye, everyone. Thank you very much. Yeah.